The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Well, good morning to one and all this morning. So good to see you if you're here in person and uh, sort of seeing you virtually if you're online. Thank you for coming to... uh, Join us today by worship one way or the other. Let me just read this um, devotional that I was sent yesterday uh, evening or afternoon uh, by a friend of ours, a friend of the church. And it says this, the title is Struggling with Assurance of Salvation and then a question mark. Okay, 1 John 5, 9 to 15. And here's a couple of paragraphs on this topic uh, drawn from some uh, older theologians, as it were. Here is what the uh, devotional says. Charles Spurgeon said, Remember, sinner, it is not thy hold of Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. It is not thy joy in Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. It is not even faith in Christ, though that is the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merits. Therefore, Look not to thy hope, but to Christ, the source of thy hope. Look not to thy faith, but to Christ, the author and finisher of thy faith. And if thou doest that, ten thousand devils cannot throw you down. It is not prayer, it is not faith, it is not our doings, it is not our feelings upon which we must rest, but upon Christ and Christ alone." Any of you who have struggled with assurance of salvation, you know exactly what Spurgeon is talking about here, I hope. If you haven't come to that point of understanding, then please do and let this be a way to improve your thinking and your soul upon this matter. We are apt to think that we are not in a right state, that we do not feel enough instead of remembering that our business is not with self, but with Christ. So helpful to keep your eyes on Him not on yourself. You know, if you're asking, have I, have I, have I, you have to remember, Christ has, Christ has, Christ has. And then John Bunyan, you know he's famous for a particular book, right? Uh, Author of The Pilgrim's Progress, recounts the time when agonizing doubts about his salvation were finally overcome. One day as I was passing into the field, this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, was my righteousness. Who is your righteousness? It's Christ. It's not you. And so that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, He lacks my righteousness. Why? Because that righteousness was right in front of Him. I also saw that it was not my good frame of heart that made me right, my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ Himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. My chains did fall off my legs indeed. I was loosed from my afflictions and irons, doubts about His standing with God. I went home rejoicing for the grace and love of God." It is Christ, dear friends. It is not us who assures our salvation. Amen. Turn your Bibles, if you would, today to Isaiah chapter 3. Isaiah and the third chapter. With 66 chapters, if we read one per Sunday, it would take us quite a while to get through this. Uh, Today we'll be reading uh, two or actually three chapters. One of them is short. Two of them this evening. One now. Uh, just to uh, keep us moving in this department here. Paul says, Give attention to the reading of Scripture. Isaiah chapter 3. For behold, the Lord, of Ho- the, Lord, the Lord of hosts takes away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stock and the store, the whole supply of bread and the whole supply of water, the mighty man and the man of war, the judge and the prophet, and the diviner and the elder, the captain of fifty and the honorable man, the counselor and the skillful artisan and the expert enchanter, I will give children to be their princes, and babes shall rule over them. The people will be oppressed, every one by another and every one by his neighbor. The child will be insolent toward the elder, 
and the base toward the honorable. When a man takes hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have clothing, you be our ruler, and let these ruins be under your power. And that day he will protest, saying, I cannot cure your ills, for in my house is neither food nor clothing. Do not make me a ruler of the people. For Jerusalem stumbled, and Judah is fallen, because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord to provoke the eyes of His glory. Let the ears of the nations be aware, my friends, of those words. The tongue and the doings are against the Lord. Our world is no different today. And that provokes the eyes of the glory of our God. Verse number 9. The look on their countenance witnesses against them and they declare their sin as Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to their soul, for they have brought evil upon themselves. Say to the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hands shall be given him. As for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O my people, those who lead you cause you to err and destroy the way of your paths. The Lord stands up to plead and stands to judge the people. Verse 14, The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders of His people and His princes. For you have eaten up the vineyard. The plunder of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing My people and grinding the faces of the poor? Says the Lord God of hosts. Moreover, the Lord says, because the daughters of Zion are haughty, and walk with outstretched necks and wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go, making a jingling with their feet. Therefore, the Lord will strike with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will uncover their secret parts. And that day the Lord will take away the finery, the jingling anklets, the scarves and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets and the veils, the headdresses, the leg ornaments, the headbands, the perfume boxes, the charms and the rings, the nose jewels, the festal apparel and the mantles, the outer garments, the purses and the mirrors, the fine linen, the turbans and the robes. And so it shall be, instead of a sweet smell, there will be a stench. Instead of a sash, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a girding of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword and your mighty in the war. Her gates shall lament and mourn And she, being desolate, shall sit on the ground. That's God's judgment. As you might know, the book of Isaiah is divided into two segments. The first segment is called the book of judgment, chapters 1 to 39, mirroring the structure of the first 39 books of the Bible. And the last uh, 27 chapters, 40 to 66, the book of hope, mirroring the New Testament 27 books, as it turns out. Very interesting, I think, that structure. But that hopefully helps you to see that for the first 39 chapters, we're going to be seeing a lot of judgment in the book of Isaiah. That's just how it is uh, for the people. Well, we're here. We open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, please. That's where we are. We finished chapter 11 for now, at least. We so appreciate having Mark and Rebecca here. So good to see you folks. Vivian. John Raymond. How are you? Good. And who is that young man right there? Did he say Marky? (laughs) I haven't seen you in so long. We knew you, I think, as Brutus before. (laughs) Is that right, brother? (laughs) No. He says no. Oh, man, that's funny. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We broach a new subject this morning in our study of this letter. The subject is spiritual gifts. We trust the Lord to help us. This is going to take up the next few weeks because it's from chapters 12 through 14. And I decided that I was going to just treat the first three verses, Lord willing, this morning. You'll see there's plenty here to meditate upon 
The Corinthian church had a number of questions for the Apostle Paul. You might remember from chapter 7 and verse number 1, Paul said, concerning the things you've written to me, and then he launches into a discussion of those matters. In the earlier chapters, 1 through 6, he had addressed matters that he knew of from some reports that he had gotten back from the church, primarily that there were divisions, deep divisions in the church. Uh, You had the matter of uh, lawsuits in the church in chapter 6. You had immorality. They weren't handling separation from ungodliness properly and those sorts of things. And so we've addressed those. Then Paul went into some of their questions. They had questions about marriage and divorce, chapter 7. And then a long section, chapters 8 to 10, having to do with Christian liberty, Christian rights, and the matter of uh, idol worship and food offered to idols and those sorts of things in those chapters. Chapter 11, we saw uh, that apparently they had some issues regarding uh, the relationship of men and women in the church and generally in the home and so on as well. And then the Lord's table. We spent two weeks looking at the Lord's table messages uh, section there from verses 17 to the end of the chapter. So a new subject, spiritual gifts. We can only kind of somewhat ascertain what their questions were based on the material that's written here. In other words, kind of by reverse engineering this, could we figure out what some of their questions are? But I've never been really uh, intent on doing that. Other other Bible expositors are are very uh, interested in trying to do what they call kind of a mirror reading of the text by looking at the text and then mirroring back to what the questions or what the situation must have been. The reason that, I'm, that I have that mentality is because the Bible itself is the Word of God, not the thing that you figure out by reverse engineering. The text is the Bible. The, t- the meaning is in the text. And we don't have to search long and hard to find external things that would help us to understand the meaning uh, of the text. Although we may be enjoy doing some of that or be pleased uh, if we discover something so we think. But uh, we're in these three chapters on spiritual gifts. Let me read the first three verses. And you're going to wonder why why does the chapter open this way? I think I've come up with an explanation to help you. Here are the three verses. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant you know that you were Gentiles, or as I'd rather have it here, it says it should say, you know that when you were Gentiles, I'll mention why that is in a moment, when you were Gentiles, carried away to those dumb idols, however you were led, therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit." So let me give you first a broad overview of the doctrine of spiritual gifts. This is very short, very broad, not very detailed. But what are spiritual gifts? They are abilities which God has given to believers to serve God in the context of the local church. Now that might be the local church here or a local church that you're planting, starting from scratch, or a number of local churches if you have a ministry where you itinerate between those churches. We will learn that every Christian has some such divinely given abilities. Uh, These he gives to his people through the service of the Holy Spirit. That's why they're called spiritual gifts. They're not just spiritual in in the way that society taught. You know how people say, well, I'm a spiritual person? Well, every person's a spiritual person because they have a spirit. But we're talking about Holy Spirit gifts. The believer is indwelt by the Spirit and the Spirit enables these gifts. Now, these gifts can be created, if you will, or enabled in the believer when they are saved or they can be sanctified abilities that the person has that God pre-programmed into them, if you will, propensities and things that He uses for uh, His purposes. They uh, are these gifts. and, And I would say... I don't know what the, there's kind of a debate about, well, do the gifts come when you get saved or, or do, you, do you have them before? I think I've seen cases of both just by experience. I look at my own situation and I said, you know, I would say to myself, why am I doing what I'm doing right now? I should be sitting down there where you are and somebody else should be doing the talking because 
I'm not a public speaker. As I told you many times, I was terrified, petrified of public speaking. And then I turned to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 and learned that if God has given me something to share with His people, then I have to use that gift. And so that kind of blew away my fear of public speaking when I kind of had a Moses moment, if you will. Remember Moses? You know, Lord, I can't, I can't talk. God said, well, I'll give you Aaron to help you out. Well, I still, you know, God said, look, basically, be quiet. Just do what you're told. Uh, and so that's what, I'm, that's what I'm striving to do. So I think God energized that in me after I was born again and gave me the interest and the uh, ability to do this kind of ministry. But in any case, um, the gifts are centered around the local assembly. So I, I'm, I'm trying to say this to you to warn you that there are people who think they kind of have a gift to the church at large and they're just, you know, quote, God's gift and they might go around and and, uh, and, and treat themselves that way in, in the church or, or believe that they have a role to play a parachurch, parachurch meaning beside the church. That's certainly not the case. Um, people have gifts as they're outlined in the Scriptures and those may be used in a parachurch organization, but you've got to have them centered around the local church. So a practical application of this is when we're talking about missions work. The, the, the mission agency is a parachurch group organization that is supposed, it's not supposed to exist on its own, but many do, unfortunately. What it's supposed to do is come alongside local churches and assist them in the ministry that they have sending missionaries overseas. And that helps them to keep their mindset local church focused. That's, what they're, that's where they're supposed to be. But in any case, the gifts focus on in several areas. Evangelism, disciple training, that's teaching, baptism, uh, and serving in the church, edification and administration in some way and the like. And I've given you in the notes, I think your copy of the notes there has the list of chapters, 1 Corinthians uh, 12 through 14, Romans 14, Ephesians 4, and also 1 Peter chapter 4, those two verses I've listed there. Those are the key passages you need to study if you want to know about spiritual gifts. Now, it seems that the Corinthian believers were somewhat ignorant because Paul says, I don't want you to be that way. And why should they be that way? Well, especially because if you think about the timing of this, the best we can tell, this is written around the 55 A.D. or so, the church had existed for four or five years. Now, a church that exists for four or five years and doesn't know about spiritual gifts has not been a well-taught, well-operating church. They should know that they have certain abilities that God has given them for His service. And so they were ignorant. And their situation is a good picture for us today we too find in the church, hopefully not this church, but some, you know, sometimes when people, new people come in, they need to be taught. But in the church at large, we find that they like us, or we like they, I should say, are uninformed and unaware of the Spirit's work in the life of the believer. How does He work? In whom does He work? And so on. Uh, the Corinthian church had time to figure this out, three, four, five years, and they hadn't yet. The thing that's interesting to me about this, and I hope is interesting to you, is you should be sitting on the edge of your seat wondering, if, you, if you're kind of a little fuzzy on this topic, how is it that God works? You mean, you mean to tell me that God has given me something that I can use to serve Him and to glorify and honor Him? What is that thing? What, how, how can I serve Him? How can I be involved in His work and not just be a, a, a bench warmer? How can I serve God and not be ignorant about these matters? The problem is too many people remain that way for too long of a time. They remain ignorant about what God is doing, showing no interest because they have no knowledge of what God has provided for them. Who wants to be ignorant like this? Well, some people want to stay ignorant so they don't have to deal with whatever it is that Scripture teaches them. Or perhaps they want to have plausible deniability, as the Word says. 
as the word is, or that phrase that people use today. You know, they, they just, you know, they're involved in some activity and they just want to be able to kind of put aside. Remember how we talked about self-deception, the last four messages on that, on Sunday nights and Wednesdays? That's what they want, to be self-deceived so that they don't have to deal with the truth. But a Christian person has no such desire to stuff down the truth of God and to not let it be operational in his life, even though his flesh may wish to continue to use the tool of plausible deniability to satisfy its own fleshly desires. We understand, my friends, don't we, that if you're ignorant of Scripture, if you're ignorant of the work of the Spirit of God, let me put it this way, what you don't know can hurt you. What you don't know can hurt you. And I don't want you folks to be ignorant like that. The Apostle wants the Corinthians to be full of knowledge, true knowledge about the work of the Spirit of God. And they have obviously have some serious problems. Chapters 12, 13, and 14 demonstrate that to us. Their church was entirely out of order. Bizarre practices, strange things going on. We'll look at that uh, as we go through. Now, one little note. Does your Bible have the word spiritual gifts? Does it have gifts there? Is it italicized, John? Is it in a little italics? Yeah, that means that the translators have supplied that word. Some translations don't use italics to indicate that. But there's one single word in Greek, and we could say it's like spiritualities or spiritual things. Spirituals. Concerning these things, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. Now, uh, why do we call them gifts then? Well, if you look at verse seven or verse four, rather, there are diversities of gifts. Verse seven: a manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one. So, a given thing, a gift. That's why we call them spiritual gifts. So, it's a good clarification to add the word spiritual gift. Now, hang with me now, because we're going to come to a very important application in this text. So, don't think we're going to. I'm going to get you lost in all kinds of Greek and Hebrew here. All right. Look at verse number 2 as we've just finished verse 1. You know that you, when you were Gentiles, carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Now, in your notes, look at section B there first under Roman numeral 2. Just deal with that right up front. In my version, I have, you know that you were Gentiles. I think the other translations in English have it better. They say, you know that when... You were Gentiles. Why, why do I say that? Well, because the word when is found in nearly every Greek manuscript. There are just a few that don't have it. The version that the King James and New King James relies on, the, the Greek version, does not have it. But that's not representative of the majority of Greek manuscripts. And so the word when, which is found in those manuscripts, is certainly supposed to be in the text. Unfortunately, and I will say this, although I will get a little bit of pushback from some not here, but perhaps watching online, that we are not King James only here. And so the King James actually, I believe, is an error at this point, and the New King James as well. So we give, to, uh, give that to you to help you. And I think it does smooth the text. It makes it, it it's, it's accurate. It's what it should be. So when you were, pagans. And that's why I said in my title of section 2, a look back. A look back. A look back at what you were before you were born again. Now also notice, since we're in a kind of detail mode here, you know that when you were Gentiles, you know the difference between Gentiles and Jews, right? This does not mean that you have to become a Jew in order to be saved. Let me make sure you understand that. When, when Paul uses the word ethne or ethnos, um, please don't let me be offensive at all to you, but I'm just going to use a kind of transliteration. Paul is basically saying, when you were ethnics, ethnos, when you were people that weren't worshiping the true God of the Jews, that's what all Gentiles basically did, when you were that way, then 
certainly weren't pleasing God. You were following these idols. Um, But why do I bring this up? Well, because there are some who say that the church has to become Jewish in order to be saved. Or the church is the new Jew. You know, Christians are the new Israel, the new Jews. Or replace, as replacement theology says, the Jewish people. That's not the case at all. The Bible is very clear in Acts 15 that... Remember when the church council got together and said, hey, do you have to... Do you have to follow the law? Do you have to be circumcised in order to become a Christian? And the resounding answer in Acts 15 is a big, fat no. You do not have to become a Jew, essentially, in order to be right with God. God accepts Gentiles and Jews, whatever race, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is kind of the... How can I say? That was the big discovery of the early church. Acts 10 and 11, when Peter went to the Gentiles... To, uh, to Caesarea Philippi. Uh, he uh, goes to Cornelius. Uh, he preaches the Gospel. Before he's finished, they receive the love of the truth. The Spirit of God opens their hearts. He comes upon them. And Peter's like, what can I do? I mean, God has demonstrated that they received salvation just like we did. And so, But this, was, this has never been an issue totally resolved. There are yet people today... Jews who think Gentiles have to become Jews to be saved. Gentiles who think they have to become Jews to be saved. Uh, Gentiles who think the Jews are done and they've replaced the the Jews. None of that's true. Uh, This should have been dealt with by Acts 15 and been done. But as the strength of religious conviction lies in the hearts of people and and they say, um, like Jesus taught, you know, uh, the new... I don't desire the new. The old is better. They, they, didn't, they don't want to change. And so they think they have to hang on to some their old system, the Jewish people or the Gentiles that want to go back to that, don't understand what God has done uh, for them. But anyways, those are the details. Look at, uh, just think with me about what the Corinthians came out of. You know that when you were Gentiles, carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. The religious culture that the Corinthians came out of and in which they still lived was full of idols. I don't think you can kind of grasp that. To grasp it, you might have to move your physical location from here to a country like, say, India, where there are temples filled with idols. If you lived in a context like that, you might understand that better. That's where they lived. In their their marketplace, in their city center, there would be idols. If you stood there, you could see all the idol temples in Corinth at the Acropolis on the top of the hill and and all the beautiful adornments on the buildings and and all of the activity that happened. There, There were false gods, sinful religious rituals, idol worship, Temples everywhere, immorality, deception, all of this included in the milieu in which they existed. And then there were the mystery cults. The mystery cults. You know, we kind of make fun of them today. You know, you go on a long journey to the guru to find the answer to the meaning of life. But that's what they really did. They wanted to know a prophecy, they wanted to know what the oracle said. Uh, they had to do whatever they had to do to, to get him to respond or her to respond. And these things were connected to religious experiences, so-called, that include drunkenness and drugs and hypnotism and chants and prophecies and hallucinations and interpretation of dreams and babbling and tongues even. Ecstatic expressions of gibberish, among other things. These things were demonic and cultish, not godly, not true worship, not Christian. They were marked by a heavy reliance upon the flesh, upon emotion, not the mind and the intellect. Let me, let me just pause and say this. If your worship is primarily emotive, if it's primarily emotion, if it's primarily feelings, then you've missed the boat. Your worship has to be 
controlled by and informed informed the mind. Okay? God never, never bypasses the mind. Never. But there are a lot of people that say, yeah, just let go and let God. Just let it flow. Let it happen. And what happens is nothing good because our minds must be engaged. Perish the secular thought that when you become a Christian, you check your brain at the door. (laughs) That is so far from the truth, my friends. So far from the truth. It's foolishness to think that. It's foolishness to be ashamed of that accusation when somebody makes it of you. You just have to... You just have to kind of figuratively, if not literally, shake your head and know, consider the source of such comments. What is the source of such comments? Darkened minds that profess to be wise, yet they have become fools. Romans chapter 1. You understand that people that don't understand the gospel don't know what they're talking about. And so you can have compassion upon them. So, We're looking back. You know that when you were pagans is really a better translation of Gentiles because it has the religious connotation to it and less ethnic connotation. They were, before they experienced salvation, living happily in their Gentile, pagan, idolatrous world. They were carried away, what does it say, to these dumb idols. Now, dumb doesn't mean like we use it. You know, when you say, boy, I was a real dumb-dumb. Uh, was a dummy. No, it, it it means mute. Go to Jeremiah 10, if you would, for a moment, please. Jeremiah 10, 3 through 5. You know, there is a sense in which for us as believers, the passage that I'll read is kind of humorous. But when you realize that people really believe in idols that cannot speak or cannot do anything, and they, their hope is placed in them, then you realize it's really no laughing matter. Jeremiah 10, uh, verse number 3. For the customs of the people are futile. For one cuts a tree from the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple over. Okay? These gods cannot even stand up on their own. Verse 5, They are upright like a palm tree, and they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot go by themselves. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, nor can they do any good. False worship. Statues, stone, wood, gold, silver. Yet, listen, the devotees of these so-called gods worship their false gods with a fervency that makes our worship look pitiful. They surpass the fervency of any faithful Jew of the old era or any faithful Christian of the new era worshiping the true God, they worship that hard, the false God. Now, their worship included such things as mentioned above. And by the way, that should shame us when they who worship the false are more zealous than our worship of the true. They had all kinds of weird practices, wild behavior. The text indicates back in 1 Corinthians 12, you can turn there, that they were carried away led astray by these idols from correct behavior. Sinful excesses they had. They were uh, very similar to the excesses you see today in, in uh, Pentecostal or charismatic circles, some of the more radical ones. Uh, emotionally driven churches where spiritual gifts are credited or rather blamed for strange outbursts in the church services. You know, the so-called Toronto blessing and barking like dogs and rolling in the aisles and falling over slain in the Spirit and all of this stuff is utter nonsense. Not found in Scripture. And I'm saying this pointedly because I know some of you have come out of those backgrounds 
or have wondered about those things. Such activity bears zero resemblance to biblical worship led by the Spirit of God. Biblical worship is holy, it's peaceful, it's calm, maybe convicting, hopefully, orderly, it certainly is. It's not exciting to the emotional or fleshly passions. Rather, it's to raise spiritual affections. Think about the difference. Mere emotion, mere fleshly passions on the one hand and spiritual affections on the other hand. Worship is directed toward God. It's not a performance. It's humble. It does not attract attention to the people, but where does it attract attention? Where does it point attention? To the Lord. Always to the Lord. And we're going to see that even more pointedly in verse number 3. The people were led astray in diverse and strange ways when they were involved in this idolatry. What, what exactly was the mechanism by which this happened? We don't know all the details. We, we don't live in that culture. And you know, we're not going to kind of try to find out all the different things we can extract from between the lines here in the text. But they were involved in things we know about from history that were uh, drug-induced rituals, temple prostitution and the like. Morally dark behavior. This seems very strange to us, doesn't it? But I want you, and maybe this is the teaching point here, I want you to remember from where you have come. Think back on your life before God rescued you from sin. Now, just erase all of that history since then. And now, you know, that that trajectory, just erase all that. And imagine where you would have gone if you did not know Christ. To what depth of depravity would you or could you have gone if Christ had not rescued you from sin? He's saying God rescued you people from the depth of foolish depravity that even worship dumb idols that can do nothing. You have to nail them down so they don't fall over. They're not the true and living God. If God's restraining hand is not on you or not on a sinner in their depravity, there's really no limit to what they can do in terms of sin, in terms of folly, in terms of foolishness. Now look at verse number 3. So Paul starts out with the word therefore. He wants to make known something to them. He doesn't want them to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. And he says, therefore, I make known to you something. So now he's going to solve their ignorance problem. There must be a connection between verses 2 and 3 because of the word therefore. Reflecting on their past background, I think here's the connection. They should find it no surprise that there is a complete separation between the worship practices of the pagans and the worship practices of God and of Christians. You cannot bring those demonic practices into the church. Okay? I'm going to make known to you, Paul says, this. You were carried away with those things, but there's something different now. There's something new. And he does he tells them two things that are kind of demonstrable fruits of worship, whether the worship is good, bad, or good. No one, he says, speaking by the Spirit of God, calls Jesus accursed. Now, why would he say that? That's kind of weird. Well, it appears that they had brought some of their demonic activity into the church. We surmise that they were bringing ecstatic tongues and prophecies into the church. And the connection with spiritual gifts is that that was no spiritual gift to do that to be speaking that way. Clearly, this was not from the Holy Spirit. It was only spiritual in that it must have come from a demon if somebody is calling Jesus a curse, that is, anathema. Now, let's think about the profession of one regarding Jesus. 
Professing that Jesus is accursed or saying that he is Lord is not a spiritual gift. Okay, so you don't have to think like some people are given that spiritual gift to be able to do that and other people aren't. That's not true. Every believer has the correct knowledge of God and profession of it is something that every believer does regardless of any other specific abilities to serve God. In Corinth, incredibly, the situation was so bad that there were false teachers claiming to have a word from God. But they were in fact slandering the name of Christ. They were calling Jesus accursed. They were using the word anathema. You know that word? I know some of you know that word. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22 says this, If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed. Let him be anathema. That is a very strong word, my friends. That is a very strong word. The ones hurling anathemas at Christ were themselves anathema. You could actually imagine, I, I have been in tune enough to know that you could imagine this sort of thing happening today in so-called churches. People saying things like this and supposedly somehow trying to convince people they're coming from God. I mean, think about the word accursed. How could it ever be associated with Christ? How could it ever be associated with Him in some kind of good way? Romans 9.3, Paul said, uh, how I wish that I could be accursed for my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He's hypothetically saying, look, I'd like to be accursed from God if I could only get all my Jewish brothers saved. But he can't do that. Galatians 1, 8 and 9, Paul says, if anyone comes to you and preaches another gospel than that one which we've preached, let him be accursed. Even if it's an angel of God or Paul says myself or anybody else, there is no other gospel. Anybody who preaches... Another gospel, taking away from the work of Christ or adding to His work by your own works or any other perversion of the gospel, the Bible says, that is anathema. Very strong language. The person who would say uh, that Jesus is accursed, he may have a spirit all right. It would only be a spirit of Antichrist, a spirit of the devil, a demon. He might be possessed by... A demon. But now look at the better part of that verse. It says, And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. He, he who confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. 1 John chapter 4 says, verses 2 and 3. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now already is in the world. This confession is crucial. Now, let me say just a couple things more about it before we close. Too many today want a Savior Christ who is not the Lord Christ. But the New Testament is full of statements about the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, it's basic to the confession that one makes in salvation. If you don't know Romans 10, 9, and 10, let me familiarize it to you today. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. Crucial passage of Scripture. Romans 10, 9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus or Jesus as Lord, some translations have, and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That's Romans 10, verse 9. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes to righteousness and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. The natural outflow of a redeemed heart is a redeemed tongue. The redeemed mouth will speak this truth that Jesus is Lord. Look, if you want salvation without discipleship, if you want a Savior but not a Lord, then Christianity is not for you. Clear? 
Salvation without discipleship is not Christianity. Savior without a Lord, that's not Christianity. You take the whole package. Salvation from sin, discipleship actually following Christ and His Lordship. Uh, I'll say it this way. Jesus is what He is. He is Lord. And you can't strip that away from Him and take Him in some office, some capacity, some part of who He is and leave the rest behind. He cannot be split into a Savior and then later you get the optional add-on package called Lord. That's not how it works. Note the nature too of this profession of of Jesus as Lord. Let me just stop for a second. Can you say that? Jesus is my Lord. He is the Lord. Jesus is Lord. Can you say that? You believe that? The nature of this confession is not a rote confession like, you know, you you memorize the catechism that says, you know, if you're a Christian, you'll say Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. That's, that's almost like using the name of the Lord in vain. That's, yeah, that's the right answer, but God's not interested in the right answer. He's interested in your heart to believe and be affected by the right answer. So this confession is a heartfelt acknowledgement that Jesus is Lord and an acceptance of the implications of that. If you are a Christian, you say Jesus is Lord and you mean it. What does that mean? That means He's Lord. L-O-R-D. That means He is Jehovah saves. That means He is the boss. That means He is God the Son. That means He's your Creator. That means He is your Master. That means you are His servant. Now, of course, you're going to stumble. You're going to fall. You won't follow Him perfectly well. But in principle, you've grasped the idea of the identity of Jesus as the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, you grasp and accept the way in which that alters your life as His follower. This is a deeply effective thing, effective truth in your life. You know, when we preach the Gospel, what what are we doing in part? We're preaching to people that Jesus is Lord. It's not Caesar is Lord. That's what... That's what you had to profess to show, uh, uh, what's it, fealty, loyalty to the Roman government. It's not Uncle Sam is Lord. It's not science is God. It's Jesus is Lord. He is the head of the church, besides being the Savior of the body. Philippians 2.11 One of the most, um, I guess, how can I say, (laughs) convicting passages of Scripture says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Whether you are a believer or not a believer, you will once at least, in the end, acknowledge that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And why I say it's convicting is because there are a lot of people that don't acknowledge that now and if they don't come to faith in Christ, they should, they must, they're commanded to, and we have who are believers, then we make that profession now and gladly so. But there will be a group of people who will make it only grudgingly, if you will, acknowledging the truth that they had rejected for their whole lives when that day comes and Christ is exalted above everything that is named, above all that is created, and He takes His throne upon His kingdom for a thousand years. And then beyond that reigns forever and ever. By reminding the Corinthians, I think, of their false worship, Paul sets the stage for discussing spiritual gifts. Whatever spiritual gifts are, is not what they came out of. That has nothing to do with the strange and unholy things that they experienced in the mystery cults or the idol worship services. The content of their speech and doctrine connected with the gifts of the Spirit, the true gifts, 
always centers around the person and work of Christ. If the gift, so-called, does not acknowledge and extol Christ as Lord, then it's not of the Holy Spirit. For the Spirit takes what is Christ's and passes it to the followers of Christ in order to glorify Him. Where did I get that from? John chapter 16. He, Jesus said, will take of what is mine and He will give it to you that I might be glorified. Spiritual gifts are not about the recipient of the gift. They are about serving the giver of the gift and glorifying the giver of the gift. If you're new to this whole idea, let me just emphasize again the profession of faith that Paul mentions here. Jesus is the Lord. I ask you, have you made that profession of faith? Have you, do you really believe that? Or have you been taught a kind of watered-down gospel where you, know, you just uh, say, well, yeah, I believe that Jesus died for my sins and rose again. That's incomplete. Because you have to understand and believe who it is that you are acknowledging as Lord and Savior. You can't just say, yeah, He did that for me and I'm going to go on and live however I want to live. The implications of the Gospel and the Lordship of Christ are that you have an entirely changed life after you come to Him. You're a new creature. A new person. And so, we're not adding anything to the content of the Gospel by saying so. You know, People want to say, well, isn't the Gospel by faith? Yes, it is. But you're not saved by your faith. Go back to what we said at the beginning. What are you saved by? It's not your... It's not your good frame of mind. It's not your faith. It's not your works. It's Christ. Christ, Christ, Christ. It's Him. He is Lord. And the Bible is very clear that if you do not receive Jesus as Lord, you are not a Christian. So don't be falsely assured of your faith if you're in that mode or mindset. There are lots, there's lots of that going around, but that's not true Christianity. And I want to disabuse you of that idea. And I hope, maybe boringly, but hopefully very clearly. Okay? This is an important message. This is the message that will save your soul. Jesus is Lord. And the question is, do you believe in Him or do you not? Not rotely, not just saying the words, but really believing. He is my Lord. He guides and directs my life. He is my boss, so to speak, to put it in kind of childlike terms. That's what He is. We are His servants. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for permitting us this morning to look at this important text of Scripture and to see the contrast between the false ways of worship that were so epidemic in the Corinthian culture Instead, to see how different that it's going to be when the gifts and the activities of the church are centered around the Lordship of Christ as opposed to the demonic Lordship of those false religious services that the people used to attend before they were saved. Lord, thank You for the opportunity to be informed, to look back, and to remember the fruit that the Spirit bears in the life of the believer. We give you thanks in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.